out with me, please, to the book of Romans, the book of Romans in chapter 3. As we continue our verse-by-verse study of this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, uh, we are now in Romans chapter 3, and our verses today are verses 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20. Beginning in verse 19, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What happens in your mind as you read those verses? If you're like many people, your response is, what? It isn't that Paul's statements are hard to understand. Uh, there are four statements in these two verses. They're, they're pretty clear. What's not immediately clear is how they go together. What's the flow? What is Paul driving at? In verse 19, we have a main statement, and we have a statement that supports it. The main statement in verse 19 is that all people will have their mouths stopped and will be held accountable to God. The statement that supports it is that what the law says, it says it to those who are under the law. To which we might say, huh? Verse 20, we have a main statement and we have a statement that supports it. The main statement is that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. The supporting statement is that through the law comes knowledge of sin. So since through the law comes knowledge of sin, therefore no human being will be justified in God's sight. What? <laughs> so the, the, the tricky part of this passage is not understanding each statement. The statements are pretty easy. It's understanding how they fit together and the way Paul was making his case. Let me just ask you this, though, first. What happens in your own personal Bible study or in your family worship when you get to a passage that is not immediately clear to you? What do you do when you, when you read a passage and, and if you were honest with yourself, you'd say, well, I, I kind of get it, but I don't really get it. What do you do? Do you, do you just skip it? <laughs> do you just ignore it and, and move on? Or do we recognize that God has called us not only to read His Word, but to understand it? Do we recognize that God has called us to meditate upon His Word, to, to chew upon it, to pray over it, until foggy passages begin to become clear to us? Do we realize that some of the greatest treasures in the Bible are in passages where you have to do a little work? to come to a proper understanding of them. 
And so we're going to do a little work this morning. I hope you're willing to do that. We're going to do a little work to to try and understand what it is that Paul was saying in verses 19 and 20 of this letter. So look with me first at verse 19. Okay. Now we know, we're going to look at that first statement. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. All right, so you see those first words, now we know. What Paul was saying here is that what I'm about to say is obvious. This is something that we know. We know this, right? I don't have to prove this to you. You already know this. Okay, and what is it that we already know? Well, we already know that what a law says, it says to those who are under the law. So if if the state of North Carolina passes a law that all automobiles must be painted yellow, do residents of Tennessee have to paint their automobiles yellow? Well, of course not, because they are not under the law of North Carolina. What the law says in North Carolina is for those who are under the law. That is, the residents, the citizens of North Carolina. If I establish a law in my house that says that the television is only to be on 30 minutes a day, um, must, must Nathan only watch TV 30 minutes a day and that's it in his house? No, because that's the law in my house. And the law in my house applies to those who are under that law, not to those who are not under that law. So we, we get this. We know this truth. A law speaks to those who are under that law. Why is that important? And if it's so obvious, why does Paul want us to know this? Remember the context. Remember what we've been seeing. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul explained and demonstrated the sinfulness of the entire human race. But he knew that there would be some who would assume that they're the exception. That's right, Paul. Mankind is wicked. Mankind is immoral. Mankind is under the wrath of God. Oh, but not me. In particular, Paul knew that his fellow Jews might be unclear on this. That his fellow Jews might think that somehow it was only the Gentiles who were neck deep in depravity. And so beginning in chapter 2, Paul began to explain that the Jews too were included in this human sinfulness. That that both Jew and Gentile need the gospel. In the beginning of chapter 3, he says that the Jews do have an advantage. They have the oracles of God. They, They have the scriptures. But that doesn't change the fact that they need the gospel. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And then he quotes the scriptures that we've been studying for the last several weeks. Old Testament verse after Old Testament verse, quote after quote, that shows, by the way, these are the scriptures that he says that the Jews were privileged to have. He's taking the scriptures that the Jews boasted in, and he's saying, don't you see, your scriptures say, none are righteous, no, not one. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's his point. And yet, 
a Jew might look at all of those Old Testament passages that we've studied about none being righteous, about none doing good, about none seeking God, and they might, not, they might say, Paul, those are all about the Gentiles. Those verses, they're all about the Gentiles. When it says none, it means none of the Gentiles. And Paul answers that objection by saying, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. In other words, the Old Testament Scriptures don't, show the, don't say these things in order to show the Romans that they're wicked. The Old Testament Scriptures didn't say these things in order to show the Greeks that they were wicked. The Old Testament Scriptures were given to the Jews. The very declarations of God were given to the Jews. So who was it that was supposed to learn from the statement, none is righteous, no, not one? It was them. Paul is showing how unreasonable it is for the Jews to think that they are the exception when it was to them that God gave this special revelation. All people have the natural law written on their hearts, convicting them of sin, showing them their unrighteousness. But added to this, the Jews had the Scriptures to awaken them to their own sinfulness, their own need to go to God and cry out for mercy. Surely if there was anyone in the world who should recognize their own depravity, it should have been ancient Israel. Well, that helps us understand the next statement in verse 19. Namely, that the law convicts those who are under sin and who are under the law in order that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Understand, none of the Jews doubted that the Gentiles were going to be held accountable to God. Right? They, they understood every Gentile is going to be held accountable to God. Every Gentile will have no objection before God. It was the Jews who thought they had an argument. God, how can you condemn me? I'm a child of Abraham. I am one of those to whom you gave your, your law. God, how can you condemn me, a Jew? And Paul's answer is that the very law, which was the boast of the Jews, is the law that reveals them guilty before God. There will be no grounds for Jewish objection on the day of judgment. All people whom God in His sovereign justice consigns to that place called hell will know that they are receiving what they deserve and will be able to offer no objection on that day. That's Paul's point in verse 19. Verse 20. The main statement in verse 20 is that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Here's the shift in focus that I've told you was coming. So far, the main focus of this letter has been on establishing and proving the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, the wickedness of man. But now, there's a shift. 
we're beginning to focus on the central question, which is this. How can wicked man be right before God? How can this awful situation of all the sons and daughters of Adam being under the righteous wrath of God, how can this be fixed? How can we be reconciled to God? How can we be righteous in His sight? And Paul's first answer is a negative answer. That is, he wants us to know, first and foremost, there is one way that will not save you. There is one way that will not make you righteous before God. Namely, no one will be justified by the works of the law. Dear Jew, you may be circumcised. And you may keep the sacrifices. And you may keep those feast days. But ultimately, these things will not justify you, count you righteous in God's sight. Why not? Well, that's where the second statement of verse 20 comes in. Because through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, when the law is doing its gracious work, It is not providing a way of salvation. Keep these rules and you will be right before God. That is not the gracious work of the law. Rather, the gracious work of the law is to awaken people to their guilt. You see that word knowledge? Everybody see that word knowledge? We can know something by experience, by, by, we can know something in our heads as a fact. And then we can know something by really knowing it with experience. Okay, Paul is not saying here that the law gives us knowledge of sin simply by helping us know what is sin and what is not. Okay, He's not simply saying that the law tells us right from wrong. He's saying that through the law, we come to experience our own sin. We come to, to see our own wretchedness. It's as if Paul is saying this, Dear Jew, try and try and try as you might to keep the law, but as you try to keep the law, learn the lesson of the law. And what is the lesson of the law? It's that you cannot keep the law. It's that you do not have what it takes to be righteous before God. The lesson of the law is that there is something very wrong inside of your soul so that you fail Again and again and again, you fail to desire the righteous thing, much less to do the righteous thing. You see, church, the law, the commands of God, have been given to us as a measuring stick so that we can see clearly and feel deeply just how far we fall short of the righteousness God requires for us to go to heaven. The purpose of the law is to show us that we don't have what it takes to be righteous in God's eyes. What is Paul's line of thought in these two verses? As I understand it, Paul is still addressing his fellow Jews and he's saying this, Dear Jew, you are not the exception. God reveals the sinfulness of man in the Scriptures that He gave to you so that you would see your own depravity. 
Fellow Jews, you will join the rest of the world on the day of judgment and having your mouth stopped and being held accountable to God and you will know that your judgment is just. Do not think that relying on the law will change this. The purpose of the law is to awaken you to your need of grace. The purpose of the law is to show you that you do not measure up and that you are in desperate need of help. Now, if that's the the flow of thought, what are the main doctrines in these two verses? And I'm just going to give us two. One is what the law does, and the other is what the law does not do. We see in these two verses something that the law does, and we see in these two verses something that the law does not do. And the first doctrine that I want to press upon us, the first truth, is that, is that which the law does. Namely, the law awakens us to our own depravity. The law awakens us to our own depravity. Do you remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus Christ? And he came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer that question if someone asked it of you? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Would you respond by simply saying, trust Jesus? Would you respond by telling them about the grace of God? Well, in this particular situation, Jesus responded in the complete opposite fashion. This man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. Why in the world did Jesus respond that way. Why did Jesus respond with law instead of grace? Well, the reason is that self-righteous people cannot go to heaven. Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. Those who have not been awakened to their own depravity cannot be saved. We're not going to run to Jesus and cling to Jesus if we don't understand that we need Jesus. This man was coming to Jesus not out of desperation. This man was coming in confidence. This man was coming to Jesus full of pride. He had already checked off so many boxes. He was simply wondering if there was one he had overlooked. Jesus reminded this man of the commandments so that this man would see that he was a sinner. But do you remember this man's response? All these I have kept from my youth. That man was making the same mistake that Paul is addressing in Romans 3. He is assuming that it is other people who are wicked. It is other people who are lawbreakers. It is other people who have broken the commandments. But he, as a good Jew, had kept the commandments. Now, you and I know better. Compared to other people, he might have kept the commandments relatively well. But had he really kept the commandments? Are we really to believe this man had never told a lie or even a half-truth? 
that he had never dishonored his father or mother, that there had never been an adulterous impulse in his heart? Of course not. This man was a son of Adam. He was a sinner. And the law of God was being pressed upon him to help him see his need. But mark this. The law of God does not do its work unless accompanied by the Spirit of God. Jesus had just read to him or quoted to him five commandments. And those commandments, if he'd heard them rightly with the Spirit of God, he would have said, oh, I have failed to keep those. And indeed, I can never keep those on my own. I will fall again and again. I need help. But that's not how he responded. Unless the Spirit of God works, some people will look at the commands of God and say, I think I do pretty good at that. I think that law serves to show how great I am. And that would explain why Jesus responded the way he did. He said, one thing you still lack. Sell everything you have. Distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Why did Jesus tell this man to sell everything he had and give it to the poor? He doesn't lay down that law for everybody. But he laid down that law for this one man as a requirement for him to follow Jesus. Why did did he do that? He was doing it to help this man see that his heart was full of love for this world. This this man's heart belonged to his money. This man's heart belonged to his possessions. We're told that this man went away very sad because he had many possessions. Someone might say, Jesus failed. What a terrible evangelist Jesus was. Here was a man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, how often does that happen? Here was a prime person ripe to be saved. Here was somebody who came to Jesus saying, I want to be saved. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he goes away sad. What a terrible evangelist Jesus was. You think that's true? No. Dear friends, this man left better off than he came. He came full of self-confidence and self-righteousness. He was far away from God when he first approached Jesus. He was proud, and God resists the proud. But he left having begun to see the depravity of his own heart. He left humbled. And by the way, God draws near to the humble. Now we don't know whether this man was ever saved, but we do know that he's closer when he leaves Jesus than when he came. Jesus used the law to awaken this man to his own sinfulness. And dear friends, as we seek to win our family members and our friends and our co-workers to Christ, we must do the same thing. Most of the folks that we seek to witness to believe that they are really not that bad. They believe deep down that they are good Folks, surely they've sinned some. Everybody's made mistakes, but but deep down I'm good at heart. That's the worldview they have. The good at heart worldview. So contrary to the Bible, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Jeremiah 17.9 Martin Lloyd-Jones says, a gospel which merely says, come to Jesus 
and offers Him as a friend and offers a marvelous new life without convicting of sin is not New Testament evangelism. The essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law. And it is because the law has not been preached that we have had so much superficial superficial evangelism. True evangelism must always start by preaching the law. End quote. The law is a schoolmaster that instructs people of their need for Christ. Only the spiritual blindness of the Jews kept them from seeing that the law which God had given to them at Mount Sinai was meant to drive them to faith and repentance. By God's grace, some were granted the eyes to see. By God's grace, there were Old Testament saints on whom the law did its gracious work and they were brought to God in faith and they did their sacrifices in faith believing that a Messiah would come through whom their sins would be forgiven. There was a remnant. Parents, as we lay down laws in our own households, There will be times when our children will break those laws. They will break our rules. What should we do? Discipline them? Yes. But we must also take time to say to our children, do you see? This is why you need Jesus. Jesus can bring you forgiveness. Jesus never messed up. Jesus never broke a rule. And through believing on Jesus, your sins can be taken away. And Jesus can come by His Spirit and and make you into a child that has a heart that wants to do the right thing. Parents, use your rules in your house not just to maintain order, but use your rules in your house to show your kids their need of Jesus and how they can have Him by faith. This is why relational evangelism is so important in our day. It is so hard in our culture to approach a stranger and begin to tell him how bad he is. Your motive might be love. Your motive is to help him see his need for Christ and the joy that Christ brings. But if you're going to tell him the good part of the Gospel, you have to begin with the tough part of the Gospel. And that's hard to do when you don't know him. And so in our culture, often the best kind of evangelism is evangelism that comes in meaningful friendships in which you've cultivated a relationship. This person knows from experience that you love them. This person knows from the way you've, you've shown concern for the issues in their life, the way you've cared for them and helpful, helped them. They know that you love them. And so when the time comes by the grace of God that you can talk to them about the Gospel, they can receive the tough part. Because they know that you care about them. Relational evangelism is is very, very important. One man has said that the gospel is like a silk thread. But you cannot get this silk thread into the hearts of men unless it follows behind a sharp needle. The sharp needle is the law which hurts as it enters. But what comes after it is glorious and saving and healing.
In Pilgrim's Progress, many of you I know in here now have read Pilgrim's Progress. There's a, a character named Christian and a character named Faithful. And they're walking the road to paradise, the celestial city. And as Christian and Faithful are talking together about how they got on this road, it turns out they had both met a certain man who had helped drive them to this road. And that man's name was Law. And they start talking about Law. And Christian says, it was he who did bind my heavy burdens upon me. Faithful responds, I, had it not been for him, we would have both stayed in the city of destruction. Christian says, well, then he did us a favor. Faithful goes on to say, I, albeit he did it none too gently. Christian responds, well, at least he played his part, the part of a schoolmaster. He showed us our need. It was he who drove us to the cross. This is the work of the law, to drive us to the cross. Now, just to be clear, this is not the only thing that the law of God is good for. Paul is teaching us here about one very important and very crucial function of the law. There are others. When a person comes to Christ, we're not done with the law. We don't say the law's job is done. We're a Christian now. We don't need the law anymore. The law remains a rule of life that informs us of God's will for us. It, it, it informs us of our duty as His creatures, and particularly as His people. The law continues to help us see our own sins so that we can be humbled by them, so that we can call on God for help and fight against them. The law continues to help Christians be reminded daily of our great need for Christ. And how desperately we are, how thankful we should be for his perfect obedience that has been applied to our account as we see our own failure to obey day in and day out. The law's curses remind us daily of what our sins deserve. And the law's rewards, the promises of rewards, encourage us towards obedience. The law does many, many great things in the lives of Christians even after they come to Christ. J.C. Ryle said, never, never let us despise the law of God. He said, it is the symptom of an ignorant ministry and an unhealthy state of religion when the law is lightly esteemed. The true Christian delights in God's law. And I would simply ask of you, is that the case in your life? Has the law, which was once your enemy, now become your friend, your guide, light into your feet and the lamp into your path. Ever since the Reformation, Christians have spoken about the three uses of the law of God. The first use of the law is to restrain wicked men. The second use is to convict people of sin and drive them to the cross. And the third use is to guide and motivate Christians towards holiness. Those are the three uses of the law. I'd encourage you to remember that, to memorize that. Let, let that be a part of your theological knowledge that will help you in your life. The law has three uses. To restrain wicked men, to drive people to the cross, and then to be a light and a guide for those who are Christians. Now, in our passage, what does the law do? That second use of the law, it drives people to the cross. Let me close with just a moment on a second doctrine, what the law does not do. It's very clear. The law does not make people right with God. 
The law drives us to the cross where we can be made right with God. The law itself is not the means of making us right with God. Justin, we already know this. We know we can't be saved by good works. Really? How often do our lives say something very different? Have you ever thought or felt deep in your heart that because you attend church, read your Bible, pray, or hang around Christian people, that therefore God will treat you better on the last day? Have you ever told yourself that because you had committed some sin for the umpteenth time, that surely now God's love was being removed from you? Have you ever felt that God loves you more because of something you did? And have you ever felt God loves me less because of something you did? If you have ever thought or felt these ways, these are works-based feelings of justification. They are unbiblical and unhealthy. Our salvation is not based on works. Our salvation is based on the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Though God might do great things through us in this life, when we stand before Him, we will not hold up our own works before God. We will hold up the work of Christ. It is the perfect righteousness of Jesus that is acceptable to God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. In Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. If my salvation is based on my works, I can lose my salvation. If I have somehow pleased God with my works, well, guess what? I can also displease Him with my works. If my salvation is based on my works, I can boast in myself and be proud of what I have done to earn my salvation. If my salvation is based on my works, then God might love me better tomorrow when I do well than He will the next day when I do worse. But if my salvation rests on Jesus alone, I can never lose it. Because His work is finished and completed and can never be undone. If my salvation is based on Jesus Christ, it is secure. If my salvation rests on Christ alone, He gets all the glory and our boast is in Him and in His cross. If our salvation rests on Jesus alone, then God's love for us is always the same. He loves us just as much tomorrow when we're having a great day as He'll love us the next day when we're having a bad day because in His eyes, He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus on us. We are wearing it. We are dressed in it. Could it be that there are some in here this morning who are continuing to rely on the works of the law to be right with God? Dear friend, I would simply ask how you can sit in this room week after week, month after month, and hear the gospel of grace proclaimed and yet resist it. Why would you continue to rely on the works of the law? Is the Bible not clear on this subject? Is Paul not clear? By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Is that not clear? Do you believe the Bible or not? And if you believe it, then you must believe Jesus is your only hope. So run to Christ. Run to Him in your heart as your only hope. 
He will receive you. Let us praise God for the gift of His law, but let us handle the law of God with care. Let us never, ever, ever look to the law for salvation. Let us only look to Christ, who is the one who has perfectly fulfilled the law for us. Let Him be the one to whom we look for salvation. Amen? May it be so for each and every one of us in this room. Let's pray. I encourage all of us now just to take a few moments to think about what we've heard and to then take time and talk to your Father in prayer. If you have never called out on Christ for salvation, but you are beginning to see how desperately you need Him, then I plead with you to run to Him in your heart right now and throw yourself upon Him. 